0: I'm going to introduce Dan, who's going to continue our preaching series this week. Dan, over to you, my friend. Thank you, Phil. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Preaching on what God is like, which is what we're doing over this series, can feel a little bit like trying to empty the Pacific Ocean by using a teaspoon. You've got something so massive, the living God and preachers who are in many ways so inadequate that it feels like we're, like, it's like we're using a teaspoon to try and empty out the Pacific Ocean. And there are particular aspects of God's character where you particularly feel like that as a preacher, where you particularly feel more teaspoon-like than you would on other Sundays, perhaps. And that's definitely the case today. I am so aware today of how small I feel compared to what I'm going to be talking about because this morning what we're talking about is the subject, God is holy. God is holy. And some of you, now that you've heard what the topic is, will understand why I feel so inadequate. And I hope that those of you who perhaps don't understand yet will understand as I preach why this feels like taking a teaspoon and trying to empty the Pacific Ocean. Because today we're going to look at a vision that a man called Isaiah had of God and the fact that he was impacted with the holiness of God, the fact that God was holy. So if you've got your Bibles, can I invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 6 and we are going to read verses 1 to 7. So let's read the word of God together. Isaiah 6 verses 1 to 7. In the year that King Uzziah died... I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. This is the word of God. Father, I pray that you would help me this morning and help us this morning to glimpse a gaze of your holiness that we would have an Isaiah-like moment where we are faced with the utter holiness of God and that it would transform us, it would change us, it would absolutely and dramatically change us. I pray that you would do a work in us by your spirit today, that we would know you more, that we would love Jesus more, that we would delight in you more. Help me, help us. I pray for this in Jesus' name, amen. Imagine having a vision like that. You wouldn't ever be the same, would you? Imagine seeing what Isaiah saw. So Isaiah lived in in the eighth century BC. He was a prophet, a very godly man. He was a man who loved God, who feared God. And this is the moment where God calls him to be a prophet. And he's in the temple, he's in the Jerusalem temple, and he has a vision of God. He sees God sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. He's the king. He's in absolute control. There's nothing that takes him by surprise. And the train of his robe, we're told, in verse in verse one, fills the temple. Now, in is it May at some point, I think, this year or so on that we're gonna have King Charles be coronated. He's probably gonna wear a robe that will have quite a long train, I imagine. That's nothing compared to the train of the robe of the Lord of hosts here that fills the whole temple. This is absolutely astounding. But then we are introduced in verses two to four to these angels, the seraphim. It says in verse two, above him stood the seraphim. Those are, that, that word literally means burning ones. I don't know whether that's because they handled the fire on the altar or because perhaps they were actually in flames. These terrifying, terrifying angels with six wings covering their face with two of them, covering their feet with two of them and flying with two of them. And these angels are shouting to one another. And I want you to notice what happens as these angels shout to each other. Verse four says this, the foundations of the threshold, in other words, that's the foundations of the house of the temple, shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. These angels are so mighty, so powerful, so awesome that when one of them shouts, the whole building shakes. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where something is so loud that the building that you're in shakes. I know Whether you've experienced a low flyover from a military jet and you, just can't, you can't hear anything and everything is shaking. Imagine a creature so powerful that when it shouts, the whole building shakes. How terrified would you be if that's the kind of vision you had and you're looking at these burning creatures in flames, shouting to one another with the whole temple shaking. I want you to imagine now that you plucked up the courage to go and speak to one of these angels, to go and speak to one of these creatures. And you, and you say to them, so you live in the presence of the living God. What word comes to mind when you think of him? What word comes to mind when you think of the living God? And I could tell you what they would answer. They would cover their eyes and they would say, holy, holy, holy. The thing that these angels cannot stop shouting about is the fact that God is holy. They can't get over it. They can't stop shouting about it. And actually, if you read Revelation 4, you will realise that from 800 BC to about 30 AD, they have been shouting the exact same thing. And I imagine they are shouting the same thing still. They can't get over the fact that God is holy. And this vision radically changed Isaiah. If you read the rest of Isaiah, you will notice that more than any other book of the Bible, one of Isaiah's favourite ways of referring to God is the Holy One of Israel. It transformed him. It changed him because he got a glimpse of the holiness of God. And we're going to unpack what that means in a minute. But I don't think we're particularly familiar with the idea of, what, of holiness. I think it's probably one of those things that we sing about in songs a word that most people know, but I think it's probably one of the parts of God's character that we neglect most nowadays, the holiness of God. And I want to encourage us and help us understand that if we don't get the holiness of God, the other aspects of God's character will not make sense. If we don't get the holiness of God, the love of God does not look as awesome as it truly is. If we don't get the holiness of God, the good news, the gospel of Jesus will not be the best news in the world. But when you understand the holiness of God, you suddenly realise, oh, that's how loving he is. Oh, that's how merciful he is. Oh, that's how glorious he is. And so it's important to make sure that we, like Isaiah, are faced with the holiness of God. But at this point, some of you might be thinking, well, what does holy mean? Dan, you've gone on and on about the holiness of God, but what does it mean? We've probably sung it in songs. In fact, we may have even sung it in some of the songs this morning. I'm sure we will sing it in some, some songs. But the word holiness, the word holy simply means separate. It means other. It's the idea that we might be able to get our heads around of surgical instruments or a, or a, a an operation theatre that is cleansed, set apart, sterilised, and nothing is allowed to come into that room or to use those instruments if they are not sterilised themselves. This is a way of talking about the fact that God is other, set apart from that which is not holy, from that which is not pure. But that's where our ability to actually understand God's holiness actually stops. Because God is not only holy, because you read the Bible and you realize that actually human beings can be holy. There are certain rituals in the Old Testament that mean that a human being can be cleansed and become holy so that they can go into the temple. There are certain things that are holy, that are set apart so that they are only used for the temple, a little bit like those surgical instruments. But the difference with that is that God is not just holy, he's infinitely holy. The seraphim don't just cry out, holy is the Lord of hosts. They cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And in the Old Testament, if you wanted to say something is, I don't know, very good, one of the ways you could do it is to repeat the word good. Say, oh, it's good, good. Or, oh, the weather is bad, bad today, which is a way of saying it's very bad. But almost never in the Bible do you repeat the word three times and this is the only place in the whole of scripture that one of god's attributes one of his aspects of his character is repeated 3 times it's a way of the angels saying he is infinitely holy the difference between something that is not holy and a human being who is holy is absolutely minute compared to the difference between the holiest human being and god he is infinitely infinitely holy he is so holy that these creatures, these seraphim, who themselves are holy, they've never sinned. They're completely pure. They can't even look at him. They say, I can't look at him. It would be like looking at the sun. It would be like looking, I just go blind. I, I myself, like these, these creatures are powerful, mighty, holy beings, but they cover their eyes so that they don't look at the holy God. And what happens when Isaiah sees this? What happens when a human being encounters the holiness of God? Does he take a photo? Does he say, oh, wow, my wife's never going to believe me when I get home. Oh, she'll never believe what I saw today. No, what Isaiah says when he has this vision of the holiness, of the otherness, of the separateness of God's, is he says this in verse five. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost. In other words, the word woe is not one we use that much nowadays. Isaiah is saying, I am doomed, for I am lost. Isaiah sees God in his holiness and he comes to the conclusion, I'm going to die. I must be about to die. There's no way that I could be standing here and survive what I am currently seeing. Woe is me. Is this the end? The question is, why does he react like that? And he tells us in the second half of the verse, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Suddenly, when Isaiah, this godly man, one of the godliest men in the whole of Israel, when he saw God in his holiness, he suddenly became unbearingly aware of how sinful and how unholy he was. It's a little bit like the light suddenly went on and this godly, God-loving man suddenly realised, I thought I was wearing a white T-shirt, but I'm actually wearing a completely stained top. Have you ever had that experience where you get dressed in the dark and you think you're wearing a particular colour and the lights turn on and suddenly the colour you're wearing is exposed? That's, the, that's what Isaiah experiences here, but to the millionth degree. He suddenly realises... I'm unclean. I'm sinful. I do not deserve to stand here and survive this. And this isn't an overreaction. We need to understand that. This isn't Isaiah having a moment of overreaction. Isaiah knew the story of his people. He would have known stories of people before him who were part of Israel who had taken God's holiness lightly or who had trifled with God's holiness. He would have known the story of the priests, Nadab and Abihu who in Leviticus 10 offered fire that God had told them that they couldn't offer as priests. And in response to that, fire comes out of the tabernacle and consumes them. Isaiah would have known the story of the Philistines in 1 Samuel 5, the enemies of Israel, stealing the Ark of the Covenant, the place that represents God's presence. And as they stole it, every place they took it, people were struck down, with diseases and illness and death, because they had the ark of the holy God in their midst. He would have known the story a chapter later in first Samuel six, of the men of Beth Shemesh, when the ark finally came back to Israel, who looked at the ark, it was meant to be covered according to the law, who looked at the ark, and seventy of them died instantly. And the rest of them said this Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Who indeed? He would have known the story of Uzzah from 2 Samuel 6, where King David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. But it's being carried on a cart instead of being carried on poles like like the priest should have been. And at one point, this cart stumbles and the ark starts falling out. And Uzzah, the priest, stretches his hand out to stop the ark falling onto the floor. And immediately, as he touches the ark, he falls to the floor dead. Isaiah would have known these stories. And suddenly, as he gazed at the holiness of God, he became unbearingly aware, overwhelmingly aware of his sin, saying, Surely I'm gonna die. Being here is unbearable. Now, please don't misunderstand this. Saying that God is holy or is infinitely holy is and Isaiah saying, I've seen how I'm gonna die, is not because God is bad. In fact, it's the opposite. God is infinitely good. There is nothing imperfect to him. The problem isn't God. The problem is Isaiah. The problem isn't God. The problem is me and you. The problem isn't that God is bad. The problem is that we are by nature. And I think that's something that faces Isaiah in this chapter. And if I'm honest with myself, I'm not sure I think this way about God and about myself? Is that the way that you think? Do we live with a sense of how holy and other and perfect God is and with a sense of how awful our sin against him is? I don't think I do. And I think that this is a particular danger for us in a modern, Western, individualistic Context where we're perhaps sometimes overfamiliar with Christianity is I think we neglect the holiness of God. I think that we can be in danger of having quite a, a matey kind of approach to God. It's like, oh yeah, God's my pal, he's my best mate, he's our friend, but he's not our pal. I remember listening to a sermon by Terry Virgo once that many of you will many of you will know. Wonderful, wonderful man, wonderful preacher. And he said that he was, in a, he was in a kid's service once and he remembers listening to a song that they were singing and it went something along the lines of, he's great and he's my mate. And I remember Terry saying, he's not your mate. He's almighty God. He's our friend. Wonderfully, he is our friend. He calls us friends. But he's not our pal. He's not our mate. We are not equals. And I think there's a danger that we can fall into as a culture of... Being overly familiar in that kind of sense. I think there's a danger also that we can have an inadequately small view of the seriousness of sin. I mean, think about perhaps some of the ways that we as a culture, maybe as individuals, I know I've done this, would tend to talk about sin. Sin's a bit of a weird word nowadays, so we kind of need to explain it in other ways. But think of the kind of words that we might use. We might speak of slip ups, we might speak of shortcomings. We might speak of being messy. Now, I understand why we do that because we live in a culture that doesn't understand what the word sin means. But we can have a tendency, I think, of using words that don't convey the horror of what it means to live a life in rebellion against a holy God. And what's interesting is when you read church history and you read moments where God powerfully moves by his spirit in a particular nation or in a particular area, we might call those revivals. If you read accounts of revivals, there's very often two things that happen. One of those is that people suddenly, and Christians suddenly develop an overwhelming awareness of the holiness of God. And another thing that happens is that Christians and non-Christians around them develop an overwhelming sense of the seriousness of living a life that is not in line with God's purposes. When's the last time you or me had an overwhelming sense of the holiness of God? But I think if we want to see God move in power in our lives and in this nation, I want to have an Isaiah-like awareness of the holiness of God. Because here's the thing. The more we understand the holiness of God, the more we understand the horror of living a life that isn't in line with him, the more the gospel of Jesus shines beautifully. If we don't have a sense of the sheer problem that we face, the fact that we cannot approach a holy God and live, if we don't get that, we won't understand how glorious, how amazing, how wonderful the love of God is in the gospel And we see this in this passage. Have a look at verses six to seven again. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. In response to Isaiah's cry, woe is me, I am lost. God doesn't say, you're right, off you go. Instead, he covers Isaiah's sin. That's what the word atone means. He covers Isaiah's sin. He takes care of his guilt. God cannot be approached by those who are not holy. He cannot be approached by those who are sinful. So God himself makes a way for those who are sinful, for those who are unholy, to be made holy so that they can approach him. And that's what God does here for Isaiah. And that is exactly what God does at the cross of Jesus. The cross is the ultimate demonstration of the holiness of God because it shows us this is the price that was necessary in order to make sure that you and me could approach a holy God, that you and me can come into the presence of a holy God and not cry out like Isaiah does, woe is me for I am lost, but instead to be able to approach him with confidence as we'll see in a minute. The cross shows the holiness of God and the horror of sin And it demonstrates the holy love of God, that that is the length to which God would be willing to go so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be cleansed. But it gets better. At the cross, we don't have an example of God versus Jesus as a kind of God saying, well, I need to solve this problem. So I'm going to take a third party. I'm going to take this really good man called Jesus and I'm going to punish him instead of everyone else. Have a look at John 12. Let's turn to John 12 quickly. John 12 verses... Sorry, let me just turn there. John chapter 12. I'm going to read verse 37 onwards. Though he, that's Jesus, had done many signs before them, they, that's the Jewish leaders, still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe, for again, Isaiah said, and this quote comes a few verses after what we read in Isaiah. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. John is saying that what Isaiah had in Isaiah 6 was a vision of the Lord Jesus. This is not God choosing a third party and crushing a third party. This is God himself taking on human flesh. This is the Holy One of Israel, the unapproachable Holy One of Israel, taking on flesh and being crushed and bruised so that those of us, all of us who are not holy, which is all of us, by the way, outside of Christ, are able to come to him. God deals with our sin and it doesn't depend on us. Isaiah could not have made himself holy. We cannot make ourselves holy. We cannot get rid of our sin on our own. It would be like trying to wash tar, a tar stain off of the floor with a toy mop. It's impossible. You can't do it. But instead, God does it. And as a result, Have a look at this. Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 22. Just imagine Isaiah reading this. Therefore, brothers, because of what Jesus has done, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. We have confidence. We can draw near with assurance. Imagine telling Isaiah, you can draw near to the Holy One of Israel with confidence. He would have looked at you as if you'd grown a pair of wings. And that might not surprise him based on what he's seen, but he he would go, you are kidding me, right? We can have confidence. Because of what Jesus has done, we have confidence that as we come to him in prayer, As we sing to him, we are not gonna be struck down because of our lack of holiness because it doesn't depend on our holiness. It depends on what Jesus has done. It depends on what the Holy One of Israel has done by taking on flesh so that he could be the way that we approach him. And this leads to an amazing dynamic in worship. This leads to an amazing dynamic in prayer because it doesn't mean that we approach flippantly or brazenly. So we don't just go, hey, great, now I'm, uh, that, that kind of, well, of course I can approach God kind of attitude. But we do approach boldly. We approach with confidence. Does anyone struggle with that here today? If you do, can I encourage you, the confidence that you have, if you're a follower of Jesus, the confidence that you have to approach God in worship has nothing to do with how good you are. It has everything to do with how good he is. And he is infinitely good. He's infinitely holy. We approach God because of Jesus. We approach God in him. When we say that phrase at the end of a prayer, in Jesus' name, it's not just a time filler. It's a way of saying, the only reason that God is able to even listen to me is because he made a way in Jesus. I approach him in Jesus. Jesus. God cannot be approached by those who are not holy, but he has made us holy through Jesus. The most, one of the most common words in the New Testament to refer to a Christian is the word saint. That word means holy one. We're not holy, holy, holy. Only he is holy, 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 but he has made us holy so that we can approach him. That changes the way that we tell people about Jesus. When we're talking to our friends who do not know him, let's not give people the impression that being a Christian is about being good enough for God. That's what so many people think about Christianity. It's basically being good enough for God. Let's help people understand it is about a holy God who has done something so that we can come to know him as Father, so that we can call the Holy One of Israel our Father. And if you're here today and it may be that you're not a follower of Jesus, you've not made that commitment yet, can I appeal to you? Can I plead with you? Please, turn to Jesus. One day, every single one of us will appear before this awesome, amazing, holy God. And on that day, none of us will be able to stand by our own efforts. The only thing that will enable us to stand on that day is whether we have put our trust in Jesus Christ. And so can I encourage, appeal to you, please. If you're here today and you know, I would not be able to stand before a holy God, turn to Jesus. What does that mean? It means saying, I am turning away from the life that I've been living. I recognise that I have been living a life that goes against what your your will is for my life. I'm turning away from doing things my own own way and I am going to turn towards you, Jesus. That's called repentance. It involves saying, I trust you, Jesus, in order to rescue me. I trust you and nothing else. And because of that, you have the right over everything in my life. You are now my Lord, you are my King. And it involves getting baptised as a way of declaring that you belong to Jesus. And if that's you... And you would want to do that. I would love to talk to you after. Or it may be that you want to talk to friends who brought you or to one of the other leaders. We would love to introduce you to Jesus. God is not bad. I realise this is a very heavy, weighty sermon. But this is not a sermon about God being bad. This is a sermon about God being infinitely good. And in his goodness, solving the problem of a humanity that has gone astray and has gone bad and therefore cannot approach him. So can I appeal to you? If that's the case, come to Jesus. So let's delight in the holiness of God. Let's make sure that we don't flippantly approach God, but that we do approach him with boldness because we know we are able to approach him because of what Jesus has done. And let's proclaim to others that there is a holy God who has made a way for non-holy people to become holy and to become part of his family and has made a way to approach him. We are now, those of us who are in Christ, are now a holy nation. We are no longer sinners, we are saints. So we can approach God boldly. We can approach the Holy One of Israel with boldness, which is absolutely awesome. What I'd love us to do is maybe to quietly stand. And um, I'm going to, if you're able, if you want to quietly stand, I'm going to, Pray that God would. This is one of those things where God can use His words to reveal who He is to us. I'm going to pray that God does a work in our hearts, brings us face to face with the reality of how holy He is, and for us to delight in the fact that that doesn't lead, that does not need to lead to despair for those in Christ. It leads to a fear of God, yes but it leads to a joy that he has made a way for us to approach him. So why don't you, if you're aware, which I I would assume this would be everyone in the room, if you are aware of a lack of awareness of the holiness of God, then can I invite you to open your heart to God in whatever way you find helpful. I'm going to pray for us. Father, it feels... It feels strange to be able to call the Holy One of Israel, Father. But we thank you that we approach you, Father. We approach you, Holy Father, because of your Holy Son and in the power of your Holy Spirit, you have made a way. And Father, we want to, we want to recognise you as the Holy One. We want to delight in you as the Holy One. We want a, a, a healthy, genuine, reverent fear of you. The kind of fear that drives us towards you. The kind of fear that says, why would I ever want to be anywhere else but in this God's presence? I would be terrified of running away from him. I want to run to him. Father, I pray you would create in us that kind of heart, that kind of love for you, Lord God. We, and, and we want to pray and ask that we would be a church that, where you sovereignly give us a deeper and greater awareness of the holiness of God. That you would do a work amongst us, that you do a work in, in this nation. Lord, we long, we long for you to do the same thing that you have done before many times in this nation in different places. That you would bring this nation under, under a conviction of the holiness of the God that they have turned against and a conviction of the amazing love of Christ that allows them to be reconciled to this holy, loving, awesome God. Father, we love you. Maybe let's just spend some time in silence, just opening our hearts to God, allowing him to impress on us the words that we've looked at this morning. We remember then one of the seraphim came near holding in his hands a coal, a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my lips with them. And he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your sin is atoned for and your guilt is taken away. We thank you, Lord, that that is a foreshadowing, a pointer to Jesus. It's a foreshadowing, it's a pointer to the ultimate sacrifice. And so, Father, I pray in, in this atmosphere of reverent, fearful, yet joyful worship, we pray that as we move on to, to take communion, we're going to take communion in a, in a minute, that we would do that as a way of remembering. Jesus allows us to approach a holy God. Jesus has made a way that we can approach a holy God. And what a thrill. Because something amazing happens when you become a follower of Jesus and you meet the holiness of God is the holiness of God goes from becoming a dreadful, fearful thing to becoming a dreadfully beautiful thing. As we look on the holiness of God, there's not, there's not terror at will God strike us down there's a dreadful sense of the beauty of it and that we get to be brought into this thrilling reality of worshipping a holy God.